Well, Ecom says it is managing some extraordinary 911 call volumes. The requests for emergency services already exceeding those that came in during the heat dome in 2021, saying call volumes are up by about 21%. Joining us now is Kayla Butler, communications manager with Ecom. Kayla, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. It sounds like a lot, a big increase when it comes to calls. Is it a certain type of calls or do you know what's kind of led to this? You know what, Jill? At this point, it really is an increase across the board and we're not necessarily able to pinpoint one specific factor that is driving this increased demand. But it's really important to call out that, like you mentioned, you know, 21% increase in 911 calls from January until May of this year already, so just in that five months. But in May alone, we actually saw a 39% increase in May compared to the year prior, so May of 2022. And while we always expect that the summer months are going to have higher call volumes because people are exploring um, you know, outside, they're doing new activities, sometimes there are heat-related calls that come through, um, this is this is an increase that's even just so much higher than, than expected. And, and to your point, higher call volumes than what we even experienced during the heat dome, which historically had already been the highest call volumes we've ever experienced in e-com's existence. Hmm. So what does that mean for crews and the number of personnel and people being able to respond to these calls? Absolutely. And, and while we can't speak for the emergency service providers themselves at Ecom, we are staffing up as much as possible, particularly when it comes to the 911 queue, which, of course, is that first touch point when you dial 911. And in most of British Columbia, it's that 911, you need police, fire or ambulance. So we are increasing staffing there. And in fact, even just creating a dedicated work team just for that first part of the 911 call to ensure that we have the appropriate resources in place and that we are able to increase or rather answer the increased demand from the public. So it's important to note, you know, during the heat dome, our, our highest call volume was actually just under 8,000 calls. And in May, we actually had three different days where we answered more than 8,300 calls. Uh, and we were actually still able to meet our service levels due to the different management of our resourcing and our personnel. Um, and of course, due to the incredible dedication and passion of our staff who, you know, maybe picked up a couple of overtime hours or were able to come in and meet that increased demand in full. Hmm. And what about what I know we've talked about this before, but when call takers have to stay on hold or when they're dealing with maybe a hang up call or a call that wasn't really meant to be an emergency call with the increased volume, is that increasing as well? We are seeing increases there as well. Um, you know, it's, it's something that has been impacting emergency communication centers, not even just in British Columbia or in Canada, but globally is the accident the accidental calls rather that are coming from phones implementing new safety functions which of course are absolutely amazing features things like the emergency sos the fall detections that are coming through on apple and android devices but it's really important that members of the public know how their specific phone works and knows when those emergency functions are going to be triggered Um, We did see an update that came through in April, particularly on Android devices. And while I will absolutely call out that accidental calls is not the only thing that is driving higher call volumes, we certainly saw an increase of accidentally placed calls coming from that Android update. So we're encouraging members of the public, please know how your phone works when it comes to emergency functions. And if you're comfortable and and willing to turn them off, um, we are certainly 
seeing a difference when that's being done as well. All right, interesting. Uh, is it also, do you think, that, that things are getting to the point where people are going out more and there's more going on, and is, is that leading to more calls as well or more emergencies? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I said this a couple of times now, this really is that kind of first year that we have seen absolutely no COVID restrictions since the pandemic began. So increases in tourism, social gatherings, large community events and festivals, concerts, sporting events. Those, of course, are always going to drive demand for emergency services when you have so many people um, all intermingling and being together. You know, the weather events that we've been seeing across the province and really across the country over the last couple of years as well. I know there are already a number of major wildfires that are burning across the province. And that, of course, is going to lead to an increased demand on emergency services. Uh, It's important to remember, particularly when it comes to wildfires, that there is actually a different number than 911 that will reach the BC Wildfire Service. So if you do see a wildfire and you're concerned it hasn't been reported yet, dialing star 5555 from a cell phone is actually more appropriate than dialing 911. And again, that is specific to wildfires, not to structure fires or home fires or anything like that. Right. But wildfires, if somebody say on a highway or you see something like you said that you don't think it's been called in. Exactly. What does this uh, look like or, or what are, the, are there concerns then going into the summer where, where typically there are more calls that if you're already seeing those levels of 8,300 calls uh, in May, that this is going to continue? There are concerns. Like I mentioned, the summer months are historically our busiest period for emergency services across the board. That's why we are putting it out. You know, we, we're doing the best that we can to resource that, particularly on 911, to ensure that the call takers are there to answer that call. But we need to ask the public to also make sure they are only dialing 911 in a true emergency situation where immediate response is required from police, fire, or ambulance personnel someone who's experiencing potentially a life or death situation where imminent risk is for their health, their safety, or their property. Uh, If it's not an imminent situation, if it's not an emergency situation, please do turn to online crime reporting, non-emergency lines, or even look for that alternative resource that may be more appropriate to help you. All right, Kayla, good advice and a very good reminder for people. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for uh, having me and helping us share this important message. Well, the B.C. government, the Transportation and Infrastructure Ministry, put out some new information about the George Massey Tunnel replacement project, saying that there is a major milestone in the project as the province has put out a request for qualifications that has been issued and that will lead to a request for proposals and go to a short list of qualified teams to move forward with the procurement process. So what does this actually mean for the cross? This is the eight-lane submersed tube tunnel to replace the George Massey Tunnel. George Harvey is joining us now, the mayor of Delta. Mayor Harvey, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, anytime, and thank you. Well, I know the the province is calling this a major milestone, and uh, I suppose looking at the grand scheme of the project, it is, but it's still not all that comforting for people who are stuck in traffic in that bottleneck every day who would like to see a new crossing. Well, it's a, it is a milestone and it's progressing. Um, I'm very pleased with uh, the updates that Minister Fleming has kept myself and Mayor Brody and Metro Vancouver uh, in, in regards to what's happening. So this is a good step. It's a, it's an important step. And now we go through that process and uh, we'll see what the end result is and what the bids look like. Um, but again, we need to keep continue moving forward. 
I want to let your readers know that uh, myself as chair of Metro Vancouver and Mayor Delta, along with other mayors in the region, we're going back to Ottawa in mid-September and a number of things that we're discussing, and one of them will be their contribution, federal contribution, to funding the George Massey Tunnel costs. Realistically, then, what do you think the timeline is like for the replacement before we'll actually see this new tunnel in, in operation and people driving through it? Uh, it's a guess right now, but once the successful bid uh, is accepted and advertised, that is when we'll know what the hard timelines are going to be. And so at this point, we can't even kind of ballpark it? I can say no. In my experience of dealing with large projects at Delta and recently in Metro Vancouver with our Iona sewage treatment plant, uh, we can't get an end number to the, in today's world. It's just a lot of companies just don't know what that end number should be. And if they do give you an end number, it's just totally out of the budget perspective. So we'll have to just wait and see as the process unfolds. But uh, as myself as mayor and chair of Metro Vancouver, and with my support of my other mayors, we'll be following this very closely and having regular meetings with the Minister of Transportation. All right. Uh, one of the lines in the news release uh, kind of uh, caught me. As somebody who drives through the current tunnel quite often, uh, it says, with the new tunnel and approaches in place, travel will flow smoothly at 80 kilometres per hour, unlike the current average of 30 kilometres per hour, which sounds great. But as I'm sure you know, too, even though the speed is 80 through the current tunnel, for some reason, people slow down. You're often going 60. You're going less than that sometimes. It's it's a rarity, I think to actually be going 80 through the tunnel do you really think that will change with the new tunnel i sure hope so and i go through the tunnel on a regular basis to my office in metro vancouver um we'll just have to wait and see but we certainly with improved lighting languids um and active transportation uh, but the secret's going to be also a really robust transit system and that's another reason we're going back to to uh, Ottawa to ensure that they will help fund the improvements for transit in order that we can take advantage of this new asset. Uh, one of the other changes will be that, well, with the dedicated transit lane, as people know, and also the fact that there will be uh, space in the new tunnel as well for people that are biking. It says the new tunnel will have a bike and pedestrian crossing to support active transportation options in the region. Is that going to be a, a bit of a, how do you sell that to people in that, unless I'm incorrect, I don't think we, do we have any other kind of infrastructure where it's a tunnel option where somebody is cycling or walking? through a tunnel? Not to this degree, and I can just tell you that I came back from a bit of a vacation in Europe, and I was so impressed, so impressed with the active transportation that is, is happening in Europe and the use by people there. It is just, the active transportation lanes are packed, and seeing people going with electric scooters and bikes, I mean, we've got to get into what Europe's doing in order to reduce GHG gases, and people seem to like enjoying it and get to their place of origin and destination uh, in in really good time. So I'm really looking forward to that. Probably more than anything else is the active transportation opportunities. But for us in Delta to make that work, we need a second exit out of Ladner that will hook into the new active transportation corridor. And we're working on that at this time too. Right. Okay. A a couple of things there. So were you seeing people then in, in immersed tube tunnels that were cycling and walking in Europe? No, not at all. These are all above grades, uh, but their transportation system, their buses, their, 
I mean, they have it all, and I'm so jealous, and I wish we would be there, but it's going to take a lot of years to catch up to Europe if we ever can. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I'm just curious how you kind of sell the idea. I, I would imagine there will be people that, that were excited about cycling and walking perhaps over the bridge, but there's something about going into a tunnel on your bike, even driving for a lot of people, but dr- cycling or walking through a tunnel, uh, I think there might be more people who are hesitant about that. Well, we'll just have to give it a chance. Uh, one thing that it has over a bridge is a protected environment. It won't be subject to snow and rain and all those cold weather uh, problems. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad it's included. And actually, the improvements that the province has made on the design from the original concept for active transportation is, is a, a lot better. And again, I really appreciate the Minister of Transportation through the Minister listening to concerns and listening to residents and trying to make this the best asset for new, tra- for new transportation infrastructure in a long time. Uh, You mentioned the second exit, though, and I know we've talked about that in the past, and there was a lot of concern not having that second exit out of Ladner for people going to the new tunnel. Is that what you're going to be continuing to lobby the federal government, or how do you make that happen? Uh, What we need to do, is, which we are doing, is lobbying the federal government. We were there just in April, and we're coming back, as I mentioned, in September, and they need to open up the funding. They've always said that they would be supporting funding of transportation improvements associated with the tunnel it's now time for them to open up the wallet and contribute to this project i want this built uh and the whole game plan is to build all the infrastructure outside of the tunnel now so that when the tunnel's finished there's nothing else to do other than drive through it and uh, do we know what the cost or what the cost might add to the project getting that second exit minimal a small percentage a really small percentage so it seems like that might be an easier one to fight for or an easier one to convince other levels of government or the federal government to, to, to bring that to the table? And, you know, what I've learned over many years uh, when I go back as a city manager to Ottawa or as, as the mayor, when you go with Metro and you have support from the city of Surrey and the city of Vancouver and other, other cities, when you go back there, they listen to you, but you have to go back. You know, sometimes I think they don't even think the West Coast exists sometimes. <laughs> That can be a a bit of a challenge for sure. Um, Mayor Harvey, I'm curious your thoughts as well as somebody who goes through the tunnel quite often. With the changing in work patterns and more people working from home and and maybe things that have changed since the the pandemic, changed during the pandemic and maybe haven't gone back to normal, do you think that counterflow is still necessary? Because it often seems now that going uh, southbound People are flying through, and yes, it's three lanes, but the traffic on the other side of the tunnel, which backs up when it goes down to one lane, it seems like it's worse than it's ever been. I, I've noticed that also. I've also noticed, like, today I left the uh, my home at 6.30 and got through the tunnel within about 12 minutes, and uh, traffic was light. But I'm going, I always, per, on purpose, uh, try to get to the office just after 7 at Metro Vancouver. Um, going home today in the afternoon, it was, wasn't too bad at all. Um, it just is, there is a changing traffic pattern, but all you need is one little accident, one stall, and then that whole traffic gridlock starts, and it affects the Alex Fraser Bridge and the Portman Bridge and the Patello Bridge. So that's, that's always a problem. Uh, I leave it up to the traffic experts uh, to determine whether or not that should be reduced in time or taken out, but I leave that up to the province. They have all the statistics. They have the traffic experts. Sure. Do you think, is it something that's even being discussed or looked at right now? I haven't heard any discussion on it at all. All right. Well, we will uh, continue uh, watching to see what happens uh, with this project moving forward. As always, uh, Mayor Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for all your good work and good talking to you again. 
We've heard about collisions between ships, uh, larger vessels and whales. They can often be fatal for the whales. And there has been a lot of research done to try and find ways to minimize or eliminate those collisions. So what role might artificial intelligence play in protecting whales, especially in BC waters? Joining me now is Paul Blomerus, Executive Director of Clear Seas, here to talk a bit more about this. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here, Jill. It's uh, an interesting uh, idea in looking at this. So Clear Seas is a nonprofit organization. Now you're looking at how AI might help be a tool that can be used to, to reduce these collisions. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly Clear Seas is looking at? Sure. Yeah, we noticed that um, a lot of the effort to try to get ships to be uh, quieter and not disturb uh, whales were really focused on the uh, on the engineering perspective of how to design the ships. And so we said, you know, what can we do that could really move those efforts along? And we thought, well, could we harness the power of artificial intelligence? You often hear about it being used to, I don't know, for kids to cheat on their uh, exam assignments at, at school. Um, but actually, there are some good, pur- it can be put to, to good purpose. And so we thought we, we, commission- we put together a team um, at the University of British Columbia to see if we could... Uh, Move that, move that effort along a bit further using that uh, technology. And what does that technology look like? Well, so the, the, the difficulty with uh, solving the problem is that the noise that ships make is quite a complicated problem to solve um, because it's, it's a whole bunch of different frequencies and the way that it's transmitted through the water is actually a very complicated problem to figure out. And so what artificial intelligence allows you to do is to solve that uh, engineering problem much more efficiently and quickly and such in such a way that you can even do it in real time and figuring out what is the noise that you're making and then the concept that we gave the research team was could we actually make it so that the ship could detect the presence of a whale and then adjust its speed or the, the, the pitch of the propeller and understand the noise that it's making so that it can actually be more sympathetic um, and figure out, you know, how can it actually adjust its behavior to be, to quieten itself down um, uh, and, uh, and not disturb the, the whales as much. Hmm. So, uh, like, and I think I saw you quoted too, that, that think like the whale or put yourself in the whale's position. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you would do if you were in a, in a, in a room with other people and you realize that your conversation was disturbing them, you might, you know, move to a different location or, you know, use a slightly quieter tone of voice. Um, that's, that's the kind of behavior that we're hoping that ships could, could make in the future. And is it in a, the early stages or, or what kind of progress or do you think we might see with trying to develop this kind of technology? Yeah, absolutely. This concept is very early stages, but but I would say that there are some major steps already happening in the near term. So I think uh, you, some of your listeners may have know about the um, the Echo program that the Port of Vancouver has in place, and that's already getting great adoption in just making simple steps like sh- slowing the ships down uh, during the the season when uh, the southern resident killer whales are are uh, around. So there are some some steps that can be t- taken already, but I think the long-term solution that we're thinking of will take, will take uh, a couple of years to be put in place. And what would it physically look like as far as, is it something that would be attached to the, 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 the ship, the computer on the ship, or what would it actually look like as far as where, where would it physically need to be? Yeah, so it's, it's, 
it's it's one of those things that relies on a network of things. So the first part is you have to be able to detect the whales and where they are. So that relies on sensors on the ship, but it also relies on underwater hydrophones. So hydrophones are like listening devices under the water, or there are even solutions using uh, using drones and unmanned um, uh, vehicles that are like buzzing around on the surface that can detect you know where the whales are and actually even identify what species of whale it is. So you need that technology. And then you're absolutely right. You need a computer on the ship that then can be pre-programmed with a knowledge of what the noise signature that the ship makes. And then it can make either recommendations to the captain to, to for instance, adjust their speed or adjust the, um, the machinery that can shut down machinery on the ship that's particularly noisy. Um, or it can even be automated, right? So that the, the computer could actually take over control of the ship and, and make those slight adjustments that are required to make sure that the noise is minimized uh, when, it, when the presence of a, of a whale is detected. And would it be specific to the types of whales in that we know some whales are very vocal, how they communicate, other whales uh, kind of surface, and that's where some of the danger comes is that they're surfacing without really uh, seeing what's around them, and that can lead to some collisions. So would it be fine-tuned to the type of whale that perhaps it's coming in contact with? Absolutely, that's the dream. And even further than that, actually an understanding of what behavior that the, the whales are doing at the time. So are they are they foraging for prey or are they just communicating? Because they use different frequencies, as you know, depending on what they're doing. So uh, yeah, if, if the ship can detect not only what species they're encountering, but also understand what they're doing, then it can do a better job even still of, of making itself quiet and adjusting to, to what it's finding out. Hmm. Is there anything else like this that you know of that's currently being used? Um, there, there, you know, there are a lot of activities around the world actually now as, as we're becoming more and more aware of, of the, this topic. Um, so there, there are all sorts of interesting uh, technological solutions being uh, deployed. Uh, I mean, I've seen ideas with, with um, bubbles that can be deployed around the propeller to kind of shield it from the, the noise. There's all sorts of interesting te- ship technology solutions. Um, and as I mentioned, there's lots of interesting technology being developed around how to detect whales and what's their behavior. But I haven't really seen anything that combines the two in the way that this project does, the, the kind of the marine biology and the ship design and engineering in one kind of project. So I, I think it's kind of innovative. Hmm. And I understand, too, or it would also have a benefit in not only cutting down on the noise pollution or perhaps alerting whales and making it less uh, less so that the, that the ships are bothering the whales, but it would also be, it seems like, economical for ships as well if they were going into like an eco mode or a sleep mode that doesn't burn as much fuel. Well, that's absolutely right, because I think some of the measures that have been proposed are, you know, couldn't ships just go slower all the time? Well, perhaps they could, but as you point out, they, they're going to they're going to reach their destination. Uh, you know, it's going to take them longer to reach their destination, and that has a cost impact. So you absolutely you want to have a have um, you know ships being most economical and going at the speed that's appropriate for them when they can, and then only really deploying these noise measures uh, when they absolutely have to. So it, it is striking that balance between environmental protection. Um, but also the economic benefit that that we all know that uh, shipping brings to all of us. 
Hmm. And uh, you mentioned too, so this is very much in the early stages, but we're, we're seeing others as well kind of trying to look at or doing uh, similar things. Is there a timeline when you think that this might be something that could actually be put into use or that might actually uh, be something that the industry adopts? Yeah, I, th- I think there are. I think it'll be a phase adoption. So as I said, there are already measures in place today, you know, to just to a very simple slowdown that, that already has having huge effects. I was at a conference yesterday and heard that uh, that um, the port of Seattle uh, and Tacoma has put in place a slowdown, and they've measured the effect of this of the slowdown of being a fifty percent reduction um, in in noise level. So things are already being done, and then you know, as the technology improves, I can see uh, you know that being deployed in stages. So not necessarily the full concept of this completely artificially ina- intelligence enabled ship uh, that may take some time. But initially, we you know we could see some of the, the, the selective technologies deployed where, like I mentioned, the quiet mode could be engaged. Um, and, and that could be done, you know, in the next couple of years. And you mentioned quiet mode. So I, I would think, too, that not only whales would be the beneficiaries of this, but uh, all noise pollution, if it was a reduction of noise pollution in general, probably a lot of people would appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Just just like we know in, in all of our lives, that, uh, noise can be a real uh, irritant. So the more we can make the environment quieter, the better. All right. Well, very, very interesting research. Paul, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, today there were more calls for the resignation of Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Not only did the Correctional Service of Canada tell your department and your ministry uh, on in, in in May of this year, but you were also cc'd on that same memo from your own boss. And last night, reading through Twitter, your boss and the, through the Prime Minister's office has said that they sent you that same note, and there was no indication, according to this reporter, that you responded to the Prime Minister's office and that the Prime Minister's office found out on the 29th, the day before you said you found out on the 30th, that Paul Bernardo was being transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison. I'm going to ask the Minister if he can do the one thing that I think he knows he should do. He has a microphone in front of him right now. With all of the issues uh, that have been caused under his watch, and the issues specifically pertaining to my colleague, Mr. Chong, will he do the honorable thing and resign right here, right now? Madam Chair, I'm focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is doing my job to protect the safety and security of Canadians. That question is so posed with, is riddled with inaccuracies and falsehoods, it doesn't even begin to warrant an answer. That exchange was from earlier today, and somebody who has been following along with the uh, this whole uh, this whole incident is Matt Gurney, co-founder of TheLine.ca, and Matt is with us on the line now. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Listening to that just totally killed my mellow. I mean, you started me with Tom Petty. And then I had to listen to that. What a huge letdown. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Apologies for that. But yeah, that was the latest. I know uh, you have also been following along with this, with uh, Marco Mendicino not answering perhaps as many questions as he should have or as he said he was going to. What are your thoughts on where we're at with this right now? 
Uh, look, I mean, I'm not going to tell you anything. I haven't been tweeting out to the entire free world, and I guess parts of the world that aren't free to read. Mendocino's politically speaking a dead man walking here. The only question as far as I'm concerned is whether or not the government concludes that, well, I mean, to be blunt about this, whether or not the prime minister and the prime minister's office concludes that they can ride this out, where that they can kind of, you know, get, make it through the next week or so, I think, before the parliamentary break begins, hit the summer barbecue circuit, and then at some point later in the summer, do a cabinet shuffle, get Mendocino the hell out, and do it in a way that doesn't look like he is being personally politically demonstrated from the Castle Tower. That's what they want to do. I mean, this is all politics, right? Like, they don't want to show any weakness. They don't want to admit that anything's gone wrong here. But, look, listen to the minister's response. And in particular, if you've had the chance, take a look at the the scrum uh, this morning with members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Ottawa I don't know if Minister Mendocino has fully accepted that he's politically a dead man walking yet, but I think the realization has to be dawning here. And because of his response to specifically the Bernardo transfer, or are there other factors going into this as well? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's months and months and months and months of other factors. Something that's been broadly overlooked. um, But Stephanie Levitz, a reporter with the Toronto Star, reminded me of this today is that Marco Mendocino just a couple of months ago actually received like an infusion of new staff, some of the better communicators and issues managers that the government still has available to it, were sent over to assist Minister Mendocino, kind of in the aftermath of the uh, proposed hunting rifle amendment fiasco. Um, and look, I mean, there's always, uh, there's the way this is described in the press releases, but then there's the reality. And the reality was they were sending him some adult supervision. Mm-hmm. Minister Mendocino has had a hands-on role in a series of high-profile uh, public relations disasters for the government in just the last, I don't know, six to eight months. And <laughs> all of these things fit the same pattern here. Like, you know, I, I have to say, I am not particularly freaked out that Paul Bernardo has been moved from one prison facility to another here. I don't think it's great. I don't think the optics of this are great. But as long as he's slowly dying in a tiny cell, I can live with that. The problem for Minister Mendocino here is that, yet again, his government has been shown to not read its own gosh-darned emails. And like, if, if this came out of nowhere, then I think Minister Mendocino's in trouble The real problem for the minister here is that this fits a pattern that was identified during the convoy crisis in the Public Order Emergency Commission by Justice Rouleau. It was identified on the China electoral interference front by David Johnston, the outgoing special rapporteur. And it certainly has been apparent in other issues like the Afghan evacuation, which he was involved in. It's been certainly apparent on the gun control file. And now it is on Bernardo. These guys just don't read their own paperwork. Do you think it was he didn't read his own paperwork? or cause, Because the, the information coming out that his staff actually knew about this transfer, knew about the Bernardo being moved for three months, and were to believe that nobody told the minister that this was happening. I, I mean, which is worse, that he wasn't briefed about it, the staff didn't tell him, or he did know about it, and he, he claimed that he didn't? 
You know, as critical as I've been of of Minister Mendocino, I'm actually prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt at least this much. I don't think he's lying to us about having been caught flat-footed here. I've yet to see anything in this particular um, eruption, I guess, that is not explained by incompetence. Incompetence on behalf of the minister, incompetence on behalf of his staff, and to be frank, Incompetence on behalf of a government that is eight years old and yet somehow looks 20 years old. So, you know what? I don't know. Maybe he's lying. I I guess we can't rule that out. God knows this guy has lied to the public before. Um, But no, I don't don't think we have to jump to assuming he's being disingenuous here. This is is a problem that incompetence alone and kind of incompetence we have a lot of evidence for. It explains it just fine in my books. Right. Okay. Do they do they think that we're all a bunch of fools and that we're not going to clue into this or we're not going to ask questions about the inconsistencies and ask questions when things that the ministers are saying just don't make sense? I mean, the short, I mean, <laughs> the short answer to, to your question, do they think we're all fools? I think the short answer is yes. Or at the very least, they are convinced enough of their own persuasiveness that they think they're going to be able to explain this. Uh, look, my old colleague and friend Chris Selly said it beautifully once. Chris and I used to uh, share a desk at uh, the National Post together. And he said, what you have to understand about the modern Liberal Party is that they sincerely believe, sincerely, that they are not the kind of people who would ever do the thing they are currently doing. <laughs> and I, I think there is, um, uh, particularly at what's left of this government, uh, which is, like I said, it's very old, it's very, it's very isolated, they're deep in their own partisan bunker here. I think they're having a hard time understanding that people do not give them the benefit of doubts that they have certainly not earned. Right, right. And so getting back to kind of what you said in the beginning, what do they do now? Do they do they wait and hope things calm down and people forget about this and get busy with their lives again and then do a shuffle or or take other action and realize that these questions are going to keep coming at them? I mean, they're going to try and, and make it to the break. I don't know if they're going to succeed. Honestly, like, that depends more, I think, on the news cycle than it does political calculation. If, if more and more and more of these things keep landing, I don't know, maybe Minister Mendocino needs to, to, to be moved immediately. Uh, if, if he can get to the break, he will. The, the other flip side of this, though, is that this is not all necessarily going to come just from the prime minister's office. I really hope, and I say this with total sincerity, I hope the minister has people either in his life or on his staff who can be that necessary voice that all of us need sometimes, who can come put a hand on the shoulder and go, boss, let's take 10 minutes. Let's take a walk. Like, let's just get our heads out of this for a minute and actually reflect on this. I'm sure you saw that Globe and Mail story that came out last night where the PMO is saying they knew well before Minister Mendocino did. Mm -hmm. That is the most explicit kiss of death I have seen in Mm -hmm. Canadian politics in a long, long time. They've written them off. Someone needs to tell them that. Right. And I was curious about that. I'm glad you brought that up because I was also curious on what the motivation would be to make sure to put that information out there to say we knew we all knew this long before he did, because it did seem like they were just distancing themselves or or getting ready to make that kind of a move. Yep. No, that's my read of it entirely. I think you have it exactly right. I mean, it's the problem Minister Mendocino has right now. Well, I should, I should actually it should not be so limited. He has many problems right now, but a significant problem that he has right now 
is that that Globe and Mail story last night and those quotes from the prime minister's office, combined with more reporting in CTV this morning, where the whole timeline has now been revealed, you and I are seasoned news observers. We can read that and we can go, oh, somebody's opening up the documents. Somebody on the inside has made the decision that Minister Mendocino probably can't be saved, but they can probably still protect the prime minister. And also, to be blunt about this, staffers in the bureaucracy are now saving themselves. They've all got their cover their ass memos, right? They've all got the emails they sent to the minister or to the chief of staff or whatever that revealed the Bernardo information. They've all, they're all date and time stamped. These documents are going to start hitting the media. In fact, they already have because people have concluded, like I said, that Mendocino is politically speaking a dead man walking and they don't want to go down with him. Well, it uh, is uh, interesting uh, watching, uh, as like you said, the, the documents come out and each day there are, are new updates and new uh, little nuggets of information on this. Matt, we'll leave it there. Uh, hopefully we can get your mellow back. Maybe we'll get some uh, music to, to play you out and bring that back for you. But as always, appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Thanks. Have a good one.